You going to sing me a song? I was. You know what that was? That was me stretching out our hello so I could press record on call recorder. <laughs> hello. Um, I also, I think I need to say uh, buongiorno to you uh, because you've returned from Brazil. <laughs> yeah, the the Italian speaking part of Brazil. Yes, yes. yes. Um, what what I've so I I know I know two words in Portuguese. Okay, excellent. Um, one of them is good morning, which is bom dia. Wonderful. So it's kind of like buongiorno, but not quite. And the other one is um, uh, thank you or you're welcome or just a generally, you know, thing that you say at the end of a transaction, which is obrigado. Obrigado. Uh, as, as, in, as in like uh, obliged, you know, so the root, the root is obliged, so like much obliged. Cool. Yeah. Um, like uh, domorigato or obrigado. <laughs> <laughs> Just to keep the running joke going from from last time, which is exactly. um, for for our listeners, which is me pretending to say hello to Don or goodbye to Don in languages that are not Portuguese, <laughs> right? <laughs> but that's a, but that's a reference to something, right? I, I don't uh, the um, Domo Origato, yeah, Mister Roboto, yeah. It's wow. a, I think it's a stick song, maybe some song from the eighties. Um, what's it called? Maybe no, it's not. Uh, who's it's, well, it's called Mister oh, Roboto. Yeah, it's Mister Mister Roboto song. I'm just I'm just pulling this out of my head. I'm not reading Wikipedia. Uh, Mister Roboto, which as we know is never wrong. Uh, Mister Roboto is a song written by Dennis DeYoung of the band Sticks. Well done, man. Well done. Not bad. My I know my uh, my Sticks trivia. <laughs> That's good because there'll be there'll be a trivia test later. Excellent, fantastic. Um, so, so, so you're back. So, well, momentarily, I am back. So, I am literally leaving today um, to go to Denmark. Damn, you where are... I'm where I'm going to have a meeting with a bunch of Brazilians, <laughs> many of whom I saw in Brazil. Um, did you did you see uh, Danish uh, individuals in Brazil? I I did not. I did not. Did you um, eat a Danish? I while I, in Brazil. I did not. Mm-hmm. I did not. They have a, a thing that they make with uh, a thing called basically translated is, is cheese bread, but it's not really a Danish. And it's made with um, uh, manioc flour, which is uh, – it's if you've ever – so it's one of, one of my favorite things that I liked when I was in Brazil is they would always offer French fries, but sometimes they would offer fried polenta. With that, um, and they would also have these fried maniacs, which are kind of like these starchy things. I think they kind of look like bananas, but if you fry them up, they're like a really nice, tasty uh, uh, French fry alternative. Um, but the but the, the the cheese bread that they make with this flour, um, you know, all all the Brazilians that are listening, just plug your ears for a minute. It was really not very good. It was pretty horrible. But um, I, but I have it on good authority. I met a I met a woman who's uh, from Cuba. Who was a postdoc there, and she said uh, that she didn't like it when she first started living there, but now when she leaves Brazil and she goes back to Cuba or she's visiting, you know, visiting relatives somewhere else, um, she uh, she finds that she misses it and she's glad to eat it when she comes back. I did uh, one month is apparently not long enough to create that bonding between no. the, you and the cheese bread. <laughs> not not quite enough for you to uh, embrace the manioc flour. 
Right, right, and 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 this cheese bread thing, which we'll th- well, I'll, I'll think of it. I'll think of the name of it in a minute here, as soon as I type on my computer. Um, so I just because I had not heard of manioc flour before, but so I googled it um, as well. And is it so? This is what not. This is what Wise Geek says that it's also either cassava or yucca. Oh, is that the it, same could, thing? Yeah, it could be the source of the flour. I guess. Oh, working, yeah. oh, it's a woody okay. shrub. Oh, a um, woody shrub. Sure, yeah. I know him. Yeah, he's. I think I know him from. He's in the uh, uh, dairy uh, quality PDG. <laughs> IAFP. I think. <laughs> I think I see him every year at uh, at the um, <laughs> the Food Protection Trends Editorial Board. Uh, <laughs> oh, Don, Don, IAFP is soon. It's oh, it is, it is. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to Charlotte. Uh, I am very much uh, looking forward to Charlotte. Me too. It's Charlotte's. Charlotte's kind of funny, you know. I I live here in in North Carolina, and Charlotte is in North Carolina. Um, I, I've maybe spent in the last four years a total of four days in Charlotte. Um, I'm not, it's not a, not a city that, um, that I've explored and, and I don't think I've ever been to downtown Charlotte. So this is as much of a, a, you know, it's, it's a trip to a city that I've never been to. That's two and a half hours away, basically. Um, and, and I, I mean this, uh, IAFP, uh, uh, for me, we, we've talked about this in previous podcasts. And in fact, this goes all the way back to, um, the the pilot for the podcast, the uh, oh yes, uh, story time. No, what was it called? What was the story core? Story core. Um, story time is a different thing, I think. Yeah, story time. Um, story Which story not, core. Not to be confused with Adventure Time. Right, right, exactly. Please don't it, please don't confuse it with Adventure Time. I I I mean I I typically don't do a whole lot of exploring when I go to IFP. I, I sit around on the compound, like I like to call it, and uh, uh, see lots of people and hang out and do my thing um so i don't know maybe i'll, I'll get to explore charlotte a little bit we're we're going to grab some some dinner together uh, uh yes and um the uh, an individual who we mentioned on uh, almost every podcast doug doug powell will will be in attendance he's that gonna... that, that blows my mind he said uh, he said something about um <laughs> he's uh, i see i see where you learned this trick he offered he offered to buy me a drink at at a reception where there's free drinks yeah he's he, exactly i've learned Just, i learned from the best i didn't i i think he was i think he was being sincere i don't think he realized that they had free drinks it's been a while since he's been at iafp um so i'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt but anyway yeah when he when he told me that i was really excited because it's been uh i know you've you've uh visited doug when i guess when he he was came back and he was in the u.s for a little while in florida and uh i know you've seen him more re- more recently than i have but anyway i'm look i'm looking forward to hanging out with doug yeah it's uh me too i, I it's nice to get a little bit of doug time uh face to face although we do we we still talk um probably two or three times a week over skype but mm-hmm. um it's uh yeah it'll be cool to to hang out with him and and he yeah i think this is the first iafp meeting that he is has attended since orlando in 2007 yeah it's been it's been a while yeah he's uh I, so so yeah it's uh it'll it'll be exciting i'm looking forward to charlotte it's going to be a busy week um for both of us uh you mm. you are um uh, i mean you have administrative duties regal administrative duties 
um, <laughs> that you will be uh, accepting at the end of the meeting. And I'm sure you'll have lots of uh, uh, things to do uh, on official business of the board. And I'm on the uh, local affairs committee or local. Oh, excellent. Committee. So that means you're going to have like a cool T-shirt and you're going to stand there and then tell people where to go. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And, and it, it, that uh, I think you've uh, crystallized it very well. I am <laughs> uh, volunteering to tell people uh, on which direction to follow. Don. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and maybe maybe telling them where to go on occasion tell, too. Exactly, telling them where to go, depending on who they are. Uh, but yeah, so it's uh, so it's pretty exciting. I'll be uh, I'll, I'll be in Charlotte um, the the Friday before uh, IAFP to stuff the uh, 3,500 uh, attendees' bags with uh, wares that have been donated from lots and lots of different food safety uh, companies and en entities. So we'll be uh, doing that at the um, the Food Lion headquarters, actually. So I'll be there on, uh, it's in Salisbury, just north of Charlotte. I'll be there all day Friday. And then uh, Saturday, uh, I'll be volunteering, uh, pointing people in directions of uh, where to find the um, uh, foodborne disease uh uh, PDG uh, meeting or uh, where the past president's dinner is. Excellent. The, yeah. So, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's always a great, I mean, it's the only meeting that I look forward to. <laughs> but it, I mean, I, I would, I, I can't, I, I don't think I could um, say it any clearer than that. There, I mean, there, there are times that, that I get, you know, we, you know, you, we, we're lucky that we get to, go all around the world and do lots of fun stuff and talk. But, um, often the, the, you know, the, the meetings themselves aren't nearly as, as great as the experience of, of going there. This one is different for me where, um, the meeting is more about, um, catching up with, with people, uh, bouncing ideas off of folks that you don't get to see face to face and, uh, and know that throughout the rest of the year, it's not important that we're all sitting in the same room, but, but for, you know, four days of the year, um, we get to get together. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, I, I enjoy it and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. So yeah. So I arrive uh, on Thursday because I have a board meeting on Friday. I think I have a little bit of free time before the meeting because we have to do the, the board meetings kind of in advance of everything. And then I get to stay and I get to stay and run my first official board meeting as president um, uh, after the meeting. So at the, for those that are interested. Um, basically, I'm currently the president-elect, and I take office um, at the closing gavel of the meeting, uh, and we have a board meeting uh, the next day, and so I will run that. Uh, I will run that board meeting. Although I did have a little bit of uh, a chance to practice my uh, board meeting running skills um, because uh, we had a recent meeting where uh, our current president Katie Swanson could not attend uh, because of uh, uh, the death of her father, um, which was which was very unfortunate. But it, it did it did give me a chance to uh, to run a meeting. However. Um, I have not yet run a meeting with Linda Harris in attendance, Ooh. and so uh, this post uh, uh, post IAFP 2013 meeting will be the first one where I have to keep uh, charge of uh, rule unruly Dr. Harris. Well, I'll tell you, unruly Dr. Harris is is trouble in meetings. <laughs> I think I think as long as we as we limit her to one wine before lunch, we'll be okay. Right. I think it, it's the two wine threshold that's dangerous. That's, that's where she goes overboard uh, in her in her meeting. Um, inappropriateness, I guess, maybe. Uh, yes. some, some might call it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. It's delightful. It is. It is. Um, and she would know what we're talking about if she, if she um, listened. listened. She downloads, though. 
Well, I heard I heard from Michelle that she had stopped downloading, mm. and uh, I forget what the situation was, but I made it a I made it a condition of whatever whatever it was we were talking about that Linda had to um, to start not to start listening, but just to get back to re-downloading to get back in our good graces. So, <laughs> um, do you think that she stopped downloading because iTunes stops downloading automatically if you don't listen to like <laughs> forty episodes or yeah forty three episodes of a podcast? And it's just it, I I mean, I think you get a message directly from iTunes. It's like, seriously, why did you add this? Yeah, I think, and I think it's, uh, I think it stops after about six or so. So, because you know, I noticed. Um, I want to say, I think, I think it was with our podcast because I wanted to. That's what it was because I, I have, I subscribe and I listen um, with um, some different software on my phone. I listen using software called Downcast, but I also subscribe in iTunes on my desktop just so that I can check the feed. And I, I posted the new episode. We just posted um, 42. Um, we have 43 in the can, and we're this is 44 that we're recording. But I had posted 42, and I wanted to make sure that the download was working. And I'm like, oh, crap, it's, something must be wrong. It's not downloading. And then I went over to my feed in iTunes, and it's like, oh, no, um, I just haven't been listening to them in iTunes. So, <laughs> so it stopped downloading. But, but then I, I refreshed the feed, and it, it started That's up. Right. So. Excellent. Cool. Um, hey, this is probably a good time to remind people to, uh, uh, since we're talking about iTunes, um, if you happen to be listening to this uh, and not just downloading it, um, and you would like to provide us with some feedback, feel free to do, do so at iTunes or directly to us. We, we get a, a few emails uh, every episode uh, from, from listeners with ideas and, and things that they'd like us to talk about and follow up. But, but you know, uh, let us know. Go rate us. Um, that's the only way that, that we move up in the relevancy in the iTunes uh, universe. Uh, and uh, this is uh, you know, just uh, feedback is great uh, for us. And, and like uh, we, I've said before, um, we may listen to your feedback. We may not, but we will talk about it. We may, we may act on it, but that part we can't guarantee, but we will talk about it. Absolutely. And, and please, if you're in a country that is not the United States, uh, please do rate us in iTunes. Realize that we won't see those reviews uh, because we, we only uh, – I guess, Ben, you have Canadian iTunes I on do. one computer somewhere. Um, and I have the, only the, the American iTunes, so the U.S. iTunes. So I, we can't see reviews from other countries. But if – so please, if you're in another country, please do leave us a review and um, tell us about the other people, other people in that country that are reviewing. And if there are – if there's more than one review because we would like to uh, – like to know about our uh, our plan for um global domination yeah exactly and then i you know just to to make this full circle then i will officially be able to say to someone buongiorno <laughs> who may be listening to the podcast in italy in italy right in italy. i got that one right <laughs> good that's good <laughs> um hey so uh happy canada day and um why yes, Happy Canada Day to you too, Ben. <laughs> Thank of course you. it is. It's, um, I have a big, I have a big uh, waving uh, flag on on my uh, my computer when I booted it up this morning. <laughs> well, excellent. Um, did it have <laughs> to some... remind me that it was Canada? Day. Right. Did, did it have something about the War of eighteen twelve? Is that is it just the, uh, historical battles between Canada and the U.S.? Um, um, no, I think it was. <laughs> I think it was about uh, uh, hockey and. Um, um, that, that that thing that you guys eat on on uh, French fries. Poutine, poutine. poutine. Yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah. Uh, I knew it started with a P. Our, I wanted our, to say pontoon, but I was pretty sure that wasn't right. 
our um, traditional um, greeting on Canada Day is um, many happy plates of poutine and Tim Hortons double doubles to you for the next year. <laughs> Take off, hey. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Hoser. Um, well, I, Canada Day, it's it, it's something that um you know it's a holiday celebrating the independence of canada similar to the uh american independence day that we're going to celebrate in a couple of days uh here and uh so yesterday my uh comrades uh, in the country of uh, of canada were were all um listening to the tragically hip and out at wasega beach or other uh areas uh turkey point uh hot hot camping and and beach areas in in southern ontario so i was seeing that on facebook and um, I, I just also coincidentally, or or maybe because my my iTunes has some sort of um, connection to nostalgic uh, Canadian rock on the days where it's celebrated in Canada. Um, I was listening yesterday while I was doing some work, and one of a band that I've not mentioned on the podcast came up, a band called the Rio Statics. Um, and they have a, a double live album. They're very, very Canadian. In fact, uh, I'll, we'll link to this in show notes. But they have a uh, this double live album that I listened to yesterday has uh, on the album cover is uh, an old uh, a, 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 a shot, a screenshot, uh, as it were, of a guitar, a two necked guitar that has a old uh, Canadian flag uh, painted on it, and that's Martin Tielli, who is uh, one of the the band leaders of uh, the Rio Static. And, and so this band is not um, – I don't know if they're great. Um, they're not uh, very popular even – I mean outside of certain pockets of areas in, in Canada. Um, and uh, they – I enjoy listening to them. But it just reminded me of Canada Day yesterday as that popped up. I was like, oh, yeah. I'm I'm not I'm not celebrating my Canadian heritage uh, today, but uh, but I am. Uh, iTunes has noted that and is making me listen to the Rio Statics, and I'm happy to do so. So check check out the Rio Statics. I will I, I will maybe uh, share some uh, some MP3 files with you uh, in in a Dropbox somewhere so you can uh, so you can check them out because I don't think that you would find them uh, for our listeners on. Um, Spotify or Pandora because they are pretty regional. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm just I had never heard of them. First of all, a great name. I mean, man, Rio Statics, what a, what a great name. But um yeah, so the according to the Wikipedia entry, uh they are no longer active. They were only active from 1980 to 2007 apparently. Um and they had one top 40 hit, a song called Claire in 1995 and uh that actually when I first googled them, that was the first thing that came up was uh, Rio Statics Claire and there's a there's a, on on YouTube there's a link to that video. So they must have gotten some um some traction somewhere to to get that video on uh, on YouTube, but yeah, no, that that sound they sound really cool. They're, yeah, they're awesome. The, you're you're right that they were in act or uh, ceased to be a band in 2007. They they played one last show um, called I think it was they gone no dead deader gone or something like that. They they named it and it was at Massey Hall, which is uh, sort of this historic uh, concert venue in Toronto that Danny and I went to. Um, with uh, uh, a couple of friends, and uh, it was it was pretty awesome. Like it was a big celebration of their uh, them as a band, and they they decided to break up uh, because of some 
you know, as as it happens, creative differences between the the, the primary uh, bandmates and and actually uh, Martin Tielli, the guy that I mentioned about the guitar, he um, increasingly had uh, stage fright, um, and you know they they had been a band for gosh, what, 17 years, and uh, apparently I've seen a couple of posts of his on on Facebook where he's talked about his um, his anxiety leading up to shows, which as they were playing a lot became less and less of a problem because he would go from one show to another and, and relieve this stage fright. But, um, but as they didn't play as much and... Um, it became sort of a, a little bit unbearable for him. So it's uh, kind of, I mean, sort of a sad thing because he's a, a, a pretty pretty great artist in in my uh, estimation. But uh, uh, it was yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun to go see their their last show and and sort of celebrate their their music. So yeah, there you go, Canadian rock, uh, the Rio Statics, uh, prog rock, progressive rock as as it would be known in uh, in Canada. Um, and so it's it's some rock and roll, but not rock and roll that my son Jack would like because his his uh, my the five-year-old would say there are not enough guitars <laughs> you can never have too many guitars no you can never have too many guitars so this I, I want to uh, I met, we've got some stuff in follow-up here that I want to go to keeping along the uh, lines of rock and roll um, you texted me or sent me a no maybe you emailed me a, a, a screenshot of your iTunes uh, with a picture of Frampton comes alive and you with the subject line you know why I own this and <laughs> and I do <laughs> and and for the longtime listeners of the show it's because that was the the title of our first podcast episode one was Frampton comes alive because of something that we talked about, which was, uh, I think the, the vocoder sound at one point in our, in our discussion. Right. Before, before we had figured out how to work Skype optimally, uh, I think for some reason we got talking about that and, uh, and, you know, and, and yeah, and as background and as a a callback to, uh, to that first episode, I listened to Frampton comes alive a lot because, well, and you know, you can point out, how young you were when I was, or not born yet when I was listening to that. I don't know. I don't even want to think about it. But, but I, so I was listening, I listened to it when it came out because that's what everybody was listening to. And especially, um, like those songs with the, the voice box or the vocoder. And for some reason, I was sitting there in the hotel, uh, in the, in the, in my flat in, uh, in Brazil and, um, I forget what triggered it, but I got thinking about that and thinking about that album and then wanting to listen to uh, uh, Frampton Comes Alive and wanted to listen to the vocoder songs. And anyway, just made me nostalgic for uh, not not for that time in my life, but nostalgic for episode one of Food Safety Talk. So <laughs> I sent you that picture. It's awesome. I love that nostalgia is now going back to our episodes. That's great. That's that's awesome. Um, so I, you don't want to think about it, but I was not born when it came out in 1976. Oh, I'm depressed uh, now. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I, I came. My my parents, although it was a big year for them, they were married in 1976. Oh well, okay. And uh, and and I was born two years uh, after that. And um, my uh, introduction to Frampton Comes Alive uh, was in 1994. Four, I think. Let's uh, do a little Googling here. Um, when the movie Reality Bites 
uh, came out. Uh, 1994, Ben Stiller, Winona Ryder, Ethan Hawke, Janine Garofalo. Uh, excellent movie from from that I am nostalgic for uh, from uh, from my teenage years, and uh, that's where I heard the song uh, "Baby I Love Your Way" um, from uh, Frampton Comes Alive, and uh, I did not um, go any further in the backtracks from Frampton Comes Alive than that song. <laughs> But um, that uh, w- when I was when I was in high school, that song made the high school dance rounds as you know the song song of the summer. Uh, uh, thanks to Reality Bites, which is one of uh, uh, still one of my favorite movies. Every time, every once in a while, I, I come across it on uh, on cable, and and I can watch. It's 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 held up. It's got wa- absolutely watchable moments. Uh, um, almost twenty years later. Well, that's that's a sign of a good movie. Yeah. So. So should we talk about H. Pylori? I don't know. While, while we're while we're doing follow up, we might as well. We might as well. So, um, my my H. Pylori story is is this. Uh, on Thursday night last week, this is Tuesday that we're recording the uh, this podcast. So, uh, a little little less than a week ago, um, I had some pretty nasty stomach. Gurgling. I wouldn't say that it was stomach pains. I mean, it wasn't stomach pains. It wasn't painful. It was just uncomfortable. Um, and the the symptoms um, had sort of built over four or five days. Uh, we we were in uh, we were in Canada uh, for a uh, pre uh, Canada Day celebration uh, to visit our uh, our family there. Um, and I drove home on Monday last week um, in an epic. Drive, uh, leaving Canada at 4:30 a.m., arriving in Raleigh at 7 p.m., um, and uh, it, about three or four hours into the drive, I was getting this discomfort in my stomach, and it just built worse over the week. Then finally, Thursday night, um, I had the most ridiculous belching that I've ever had, um, and this is like in the middle of the night, so much that that Danny actually had to leave our bedroom and go sleep in another room, which I'm not proud of of at all. Um, and it was this like sulfur smelling belches and I hadn't eaten much all week. So I, um, you know, sort of Googled around a little bit for symptoms at three o'clock in the morning and then, uh, made a plan to call my primary care doctor and, uh, came to the conclusion that I might uh, have a, an H. pylori infection and, uh, Went to the, the doctor and she did some uh, some tests, a really cool breath test. I didn't have to have an endoscopy, or which was nice. Um, uh, but uh, it's a it's, it's a test that uh, uh, you you blow into a bag, uh, measures uh, uh, some it collects carbon dioxide, uh, and then uh, drink a, a compound, and then blow into a bag again. And, and uh, lo and behold, uh, I have an H or I had an H pylori uh, infection, which was causing this upper GI stress. And and I texted you about it because uh, way back in uh, episode, gosh, I want to say 23, I think, um, you had talked about uh, going for an endoscopy and, and finding out that you were uh, asymptomatically infected with H. pylori. Um, so I couldn't remember the, the, the details and uh, uh, texted you to see if you had had any symptoms and uh, then let you know that I had some really nasty symptoms. And it seems to have – I mean, it is clearing up. I, I'm on a uh, – uh, a, a cocktail of uh, um, Prilosec and, and a couple of antibiotics, and, and I feel much, much better. 
but it was uh yeah it was a very unique set of uh symptoms that i'd not uh, experienced before and when i went to the to the um to my to my doctor um she asked me to describe the burping and i said well i haven't eaten much and and i'm not you know i uh, can sometimes be gassy um as an individual and and this is you know weird because uh you know i've probably had three meals in the past four days and i i'm you know every minute or so having these really deep belches and they taste like popcorn. And she said, have, have you eaten any popcorn? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, I, I thought that was pretty fun. Um, that's, that, that's, that is really neat. I wonder, you know, I wonder like the, cause, cause you know, one of the things that they, they, I guess they used to use for popcorn flavoring and microwave popcorn and they, they didn't, they don't anymore is diacetyl because I think it gives the workers that, mm. that work in those factories, it gives them uh, lung problems. But I wonder, I mean, so yeah, maybe w- whatever is there was producing diacetyl or, or, or something anyway, maybe it wasn't, maybe not buttered popcorn that you were tasting, but uh, that's, that's fa- that Yeah. That's just fascinating to me. Like how can something in your stomach be making this chemical that, that is reminiscent of popcorn. It was, yeah, it was pretty incredible. And, and I, I, I as I was Googling, um, around, uh, you know, just sort of thinking, you know, cause as you do at three 30 in the morning when you can't, when you can't sleep, like, Oh, well, let's go see what Dr. Google says and WebMD and uh, message boards and see what other people's symptoms might've, might've been. Um, this popcorn taste came up over and over again. I was like, that's exactly what I'm experiencing. I've never, ever had this before. Wow. Um, so anyway, uh, I had to bail on some stuff I was going to do on Friday just from, just, just from this girl. Like it was, it was very bizarre. I, you know, um, and that in and sort of continued into into some diarrhea so i got to give uh a, a, my second stool sample in the last three or four years uh my first one being for uh campylobacter uh, infection a couple of years ago um but uh so that, and actually that stool sample uh went much better this time i was given more um more tools by the by, by my primary care doctor uh to to harvest and and collect and it was uh, uh I, I will uh, if you're interested don i will show you some pictures pictures uh i want to see i want to see your stool sampling tools i will i will show i will show you uh, i will show you them they're um unfortunately popped up in my photo stream which is linked (laughs) to (laughs) yeah um which is linked to our apple tv so we have you know all these beautiful pictures of my children and places that we've been that come up automatically from my camera roll and then out of nowhere it's all just randomized pictures out of nowhere there's this picture of of this what looks like an upside down hat with a bunch of stool in it and Danny's like you need to remove that from the photo stream <laughs> I, you know there is there is exactly one reason why I have not linked my photo stream to anything and that is it um, I mean and there you know and you know I have weird I have weird pictures in, in, in my photo stream too I think we probably talked about that um, that my wife um, had um, uh, a nephrostomy tube for a while and, and I would take pictures of the entry point just to kind of gauge you know what, if it was like looking redder or more infected and so yeah I have one Wonderful pictures from around the world, and then the pictures of a plastic tube coming out of my wife's back. <laughs> so yeah, um, it's uh, similarly gross. So, but but I don't have. I'm not sharing my photo, photo stream anywhere, which means that uh, when I go to visit my family, and uh, yeah, there's no way to show them pictures easily. <laughs> 
Right. Well, yes, this was uh, a bit of a surprise. So, uh, to 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 Danny as it popped up when I wasn't home uh, on our uh, on our TV as it was scrolling through photos. So, um, so anyway, yeah, that's my that's my H. pylori. Um, hey, th- this might be a good time to do bug trivia. Um, because this here's a this this is a place for uh, this is what they call a segue. Um, did you know, Don? Since you you've been around in the world of microbiology for a while, that um, H. pylori um, was uh, initially uh, a Campylobacter. I did know that it used to be called Campylobacter pylori. Yeah, I didn't know that uh, until I. That's because you're not old like me. I'm not old enough. I'm old. I feel old sometimes, but <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I was like, oh, it's campy. Now the, this is a segue into bug trivia. Unfortunately, um, we don't have any history from Carl on campy uh, in the bug trivia file. Uh, but um, yeah, it used to be a Campylobacter, and uh, then I believe it was reclassified in the early 80s due to uh, um, some some differences uh, within the bug, and, and Heliobacter uh, was created as, as its own um, uh, species, and it's uh, it, it's only it's the, it's it's a whole different bug. So so anyway, hey, let's do bug trivia. Let's do it. Bug trivia. Do-do-do-do-do-do. Bug trivia. Change it up a little bit there. <laughs> did you uh, did you have something that you wanted to do from bug tri- from from the file? I wanted to do camp. I wanted to do camp. Campylobacter, but it wasn't there. <laughs> but it wasn't there. <laughs> so, um, so I don't have anything. I, I've got nothing kind of uh, 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 on deck here. Is there anything uh, that that strikes your fancy? Well, I was. I don't have the file open. I was trying to get my pen to work because I wanted to write down a note to ask you something. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. So. Um, <clears throat> This has nothing to do with bug trivia, so we may have to have an abortive bug trivia episode this week. <laughs> but um, uh, the question is, so I'm very curious now. I want to. I'm just want to go back to this this Helicobacter infection and the burping thing that you had. So I've always wondered, and I think there's been some surveys of the food supply, you know, just to to kind of trying to pick it back to food safety too. Um, surveys of the food supply looking for Helicobacter in the food supply and questions about, okay, so we have this, you know, we have Helicobacter infections. Many, many people are apparently infected. Some like me, apparently asymptomatically, some like you, apparently not asymptomatically. The question is to what degree is any of that uh, Helicobacteriosis, um, which I guess is a word. Um, yeah is uh, to what extent is any of that foodborne? And so my question to you is how do you think that you got this infection? Gosh, I don't I don't know. I mean, uh, as I jumped into the primary literature to read a little more about it, you know, I've I've been exposed a little bit to it. We used to collect stories way way back in the day for um the the entity known as FSnet prior to barf blogs and barf blog and bites uh on Helicobacter um pylori stories. So it was, you know, we, I, I had read a, a bunch about it, and that was mainly linked to um, this idea that uh, it, it potentially is a risk factor for, for certain forms of stomach cancer. Um, but but as I looked, uh, you know, more recently at this, it, it seems like um, there's an estimation that like 50 to 60 percent of the world's population has um, has an infect has, has an infection and, and and you know the vast majority uh, are are asymptomatic. So I mean I don't know. I, uh, who knows if if this is something that um, that was 
I've been infected for a long, long time uh, by it. And um, the stress of driving 15 hours with screaming children on Monday uh, created some, you know, uh, some excitement in and, my GI. And, and not eating, too. And not right? eating. I mean, you mentioned not eating, and I was trying to figure out whether that was cause or effect, but it may have been cause, right? So your, your, your stomach is used to, or your intestines and your stomach are used to getting a regular food supply, and you weren't doing that. And so that may have changed the microflora. I mean, I think about this stuff a lot, right? It changed the microflora and caused the helicobacter to gain an upper hand, and yeah, fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it, <clears throat> it's, yeah, it's, uh, who, who knows? What, yeah, it, what, where the um, source of infection was because it's so prevalent, and then what those uh, you know factors were that led to the symptoms. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I mean, it, it is kind of amazing that that something changed within my. Uh, you know, within my body or within my my environment to lead to this, especially because there are so many people that are already infected with it and don't have this, um, you know, or, or may have mild symptoms that aren't, aren't reported or, or whatever. But there, there's a bit um, uh, here in uh, in the primary literature that like you mentioned, sort of foodborne um, uh, potential source. Uh, there's a, a paper that came out of. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, figure out where this was. I think it was in, uh, from Spain uh, in 04, uh, Helicobacter pylori in food products, a public health problem. Um, and the abstract here, this is in methods in molecular biology, and uh, we'll link to this in the show notes. But it's uh, uh, basically goes through that... Um, you know, in it's kind of it's been found in a whole bunch of different places, like uh, irrigation water on fresh produce. Um, consumption of water from a municipal supply has been suggested as a risk factor for children um, in South America due to uh, chlorination uh, issues. Um, you know, it's it's kind of all over the place. So, so I don't know. Um, and, it, yeah. And, and something something came across my 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 radar, and I don't remember where I saw it, but I've just Googled to to confirm that indeed it's what I thought it was. And and I'm just looking at an article um, now um, uh, by Hung and Wong uh, assessing the risks and benefits of treating Helicobacter pylori infection, and it's a an article that's looking at risks and benefits, and 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 there is um, uh, there is some thought or there is uh, uh, something called the Blasser hypothesis, which was advocated by Blasser in 1999, that um, that there may be a risk of actually getting rid of Helicobacter pylori. And, and uh, it's just, again, reading from the article, um, it's based on circumstantial evidence that not, helic- not all H. pylori infected patients would develop clinical consequences, uh, their possible uh, commensal role of Helicobacter pylori since this human was infecting human, uh, since this bacterium was infecting humans 58,000 years ago before the migration out of East Africa. Um, he said colonization with certain strains appear to be protective against uh, proximal diseases, including uh, GERD, which is the uh, reflux, uh, Barrett's esophagus, and uh, certain uh, carcinomas of the gastric, cardia, and lower esophagus. So uh, eradication may remove some beneficial strains and provoke provoke uh, esophageal disease or gastric cancer uh, at the at the cardia. So, I don't know, interesting uh, bacteria are interesting things, Ben. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, I haven't looked too much into it, but I wonder what my, you know, after um, the the treatment, so I'm on a it's a 14-day treatment course. I wonder what the likelihood of me being reinfected uh, with you know, with H pylori 
at a future date and that being you know an asymptomatic infection like i would it would be and i mean maybe there's some some work that's been done on it already but um uh, you know i wonder i wonder if this if this is the the treatment gets rid of all the that potential protective um uh role that it that it plays sort of forever maybe i can't maybe at this maybe i won't be able to uh maybe the i don't know well i I'm, i have no idea what's what's going to happen but i was yeah well, you know, and this this makes me think of another thing that I've 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 I'm not sure ever anybody advocating it, but just to, again make the link even more directly to food safety. Uh, talking about listeria and and you know wet food processing plants, meat processing plants have are, have been described as having, uh, or you can you can re isolate um, many months separated in time the same strains of listeria from from a food processing plant with the idea that okay so these strains of listeria have colonized this plant and in fact um, if it's a non-pathogenic strain of listeria mm. that might actually be a good thing because what you don't want is you don't want colonization of the plant with listeria monocytogenes especially a virulent strain and so now again I don't I, I mean I'm not we're not to the point where we're advocating that people colonize their meat plants with um, uh, non-pathogenic listeria. But, but I think it's an interesting idea that, you know, it, it makes sense, right? There's, there's these different strains of listeria out there. They're probably all competing for the same ecological niches. And if you have one that's in a niche um, and, and kind of occupying it and dominating that particular microenvironment in the plant, um, that's going to keep the bad ones out. So I don't know. It's, uh, like I said before, bacteria are very, uh, are very interesting. And I, you know, speaking of uh, our own uh, intestinal discomforts and, and upsets, I, I have a, uh, and it's not. I'm not really sure it's a story, but it's an observation that I made in Brazil. I was, I was, I mean, and well, so first of all, I have to say that uh, one of the things that impressed all of the Brazilians tremendously is I was eating pretty much anything there from the first day, including fruits and vegetables, leafy greens, and, and all of that. And they're like, "Wow, you're you're very brave." There's uh, there was another famous food microbiologist who visited i 'm not sure if I should say his name they did say his name um, uh, uh, who who he only ate cooked food while he was here and i 'm like well uh, maybe he 's smarter than me or or, or, or not i don 't know um but but again i was for for several weeks i was you know, great. I was like no, having no uh, no symptoms, no problems. Everything was was fantastic. And then um, I started to get. It wasn't again no no fever, no real infection, but just kind of a dis, discomfort and 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 just you know needing to like not be far away from a bathroom. It was almost. It made me think, like almost like what somebody who's lactose intolerant would feel. And I started thinking about, well, okay, so what has my what has my milk consumption been like? And and so one of the things that was a regular thing for me was getting up in the morning and either if I was in my uh in my flat, I would have um milk, but it was UHT milk, right? It, it was so shelf stable milk that of course once I opened it I put it in the refrigerator, but UHT milk that I would mix directly with instant coffee and I would have several cups of that in the morning or I was at hotels where I would be again at a, at a buffet situation where I'd be, have several cups of coffee mixed liberal liberal amounts of coffee, strong Brazilian coffee with milk and I began to wonder, I, I wonder if something has given me lactose intolerance or something has changed in my microflora because of all of this UHT milk that I'm consuming because I don't normally consume UHT milk. You know, usually I just consume uh, like, you know, regular, you know, 
good old fashioned American pasteurized milk, none of this fancy Brazilian crap. Um, and uh, but but I really I began to wonder. And then and for the last couple of weeks, things have just been not quite right. But now I've been home. I've stopped consuming UHT milk, and everything seems to be going back to normal. So I don't know. It's just that again, this whole discussion about interaction of microflora and the complex interactions both in in the world and in our bodies is just something that I just think we're just and with all the work that's going on with metagenomics, we're, something we're just just beginning to scratch the surface of. Well, and yeah, you wonder how much um, you're exposed to in, in other foods as well. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the fresh produce side of things, um, it, you know, is interesting. I don't know, what, you know, I guess in, in most cases where I've visited other countries, I mean, really other than Canada and the U.S., I've uh, uh, sort of sought to not eat you know, as as many uh, fresh foods uh, kind of at all. And I it kind of fail at that over time because it's really, I mean, especially when, like, you, you're there for a month, it's it's difficult to to just eat cooked foods, like, and, in, in, you know, not experience um, the, the, all these other items that are that are there. But but just the, the and it may not be even, um, in, you know, pathogens, but just what the, you know, local microflora on, you know, uh, that that's on or in, uh, that fresh produce may throw your, your stomach, uh, environment off as well. You know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So there, I mean, yeah, I mean, so if, if you think about it, that, that kind of makes sense, right? We have this complicated ecosystem. Things are constantly coming in. Things are constantly moving out. Um, maybe it was, maybe it was just, uh, a high, uh, high influx of dairy. Maybe I was eating more dairy or the, the dairy that I was eating had more of a certain kind of organism or maybe, who knows? I mean, I was thinking, you know, okay, so we, in the U.S., we tend to not have a problem with food poisoning from Bacillus cereus, but they have more of a problem in Europe. Um, we don't know if that's because of poor epidemiology on the part of the U.S. or maybe there really is something different. So yeah, so maybe it was putting a whole bunch of UHT milk, which might contain bacillus cereus spores into my in- intestines. Maybe that I was messing up the microflora. You know, I, I mean, it's a it's an impossible thing to uh, to test at this point. I mean, there's no you know there's no way to do a real good experiment with that. But anyway, it just got me just got me really thinking. Well, and, and I think that I mean what, what you're talking about brings up this larger question uh, about. Um, you know, food supply and environmental sources, and and you know, we've we've talked um, a little bit uh, about soil um, with the uh, with the cantaloupe assessments that uh, that FDA has been conducting, um, and and sort of the, this difference of um, listeria prevalence in soil in North Carolina versus Florida versus Colorado and New York, and and that there's a little bit of um, you know, uh, 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 the, the, I think just the start of of the investigation into that that world of um, there there are soil scientists out there that have been looking at, a lot at what what are soil microbes look like, but not specifically targeting some of the pathogens that we see in um, being important in foodborne illness. And maybe you know, it, the the more that we know about it, maybe we find out that um, that North Carolina, for instance, isn't a great place to grow 
cantaloupes and just because of the uh the prevalence of certain pathogens in our environment and how that interacts with uh some of the other soil microbes um uh, that that these products are be growing grown in you know maybe brazil is not a great place for leafy greens but it's a great place for tomatoes or whatever i mean i think that the more um the more research that um that, that we'll see done in that in that world and and this realization that um you know like our, our good friends linda and, and michelle have uh talked about for the last you know eight or so years that that soil and the environment can be um a, a, a source for pathogens uh it, without an animal host you know the, the this idea that um that salmonella can persist in in the soil in almond orchards for for years and years and, and how what that means to 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 the food supply to to almonds in general you know maybe the, so I, I guess what i'm what, what i'm saying is maybe maybe there are places in uh throughout the world that are really great for fertility and really great for yield but are riskier for foodborne illness. And, and so you've got a, a, a producer in industry that, that's got to recognize that. I mean, the, this, the, you, you know, your, your situation um, that you dealt with in Brazil is, is, is you know, very um, taking that down to the individual. But if you kind of look at, um, you know, the, the supply from the start from production, that maybe uh, that maybe that matters. Yeah, and not and not just not just soil, but water as well. And we're starting to see, thanks to you know research funded by USDA, um, you know, in, in, around the country, is starting to see these data sets for water come out. And again, you know, one that we just recently published with, again, co-authored with Michelle, with uh, Michelle's uh, graduate student, also and also Canadian, um, um, uh, Rachel McEgan, my graduate student um, Gabriel Moodian, and Larry Goodridge, who's the PI on the grant, um, looking at. California, I mean, California, Florida surface waters and the incredibly high prevalence that happens to exist uh, for in those waters of, of salmonella. And there are similar data sets coming around from other parts of the country where the, those 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 patterns are different. And so realizing, you know, I mean, on, a, on the one level. New Jersey farmers love to talk about how New Jersey is not like California and they don't want the same regulations. They want a different regulatory structure or a flexible regulatory structure, but not just because of the differences in farming practices, but, but just because of maybe the differences in the, um, in the climate, um, in the, in, in, and to a part in the, the farming practices, the past farming practices. I mean, I, I was on a call with somebody the other day talking about there's a certain region of the country where uh, apparently uh, salmonella is just endemic in the soil and we've seen this, you know, we've seen this in, with some of the almond stuff as well, where there's, again, if you have certain cultivating practices for, for almond orchards where you plant the trees very close together to get good production, the, the soil is more shaded. So, you know, that's affecting the UV light. Maybe that has something to do with it. And, and again, the ability of if you dose at high levels for, you know, with manure for a long period of time, you begin to maybe have a uh, you know, s- select for salmonella strains that can that can persist in that environment. I don't know. It's uh, you know, we're really just at the beginning stages of tr- being able to understand all of this and having the 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 tools to be able to go out and and really understand, you know, ecologically what's happening in in an environment. We can go out now and we can do samples and and see re- recurrence of strains and and through. Uh, you know, genetic fingerprinting, we can see it's the same strains. But then now the next step is to begin to understand how those strains interact with all of the other strains to, to try to understand how these systems behave over time. Yeah, and, and the more that we, uh, um, that we do that, we'll be able to uh, give, you know, messages 
and and options so so producers or or you know an industry can can make decisions and say okay um this what this this environment that we're trying to use to to grow this this might be too risky but here's another environment um within the same region that that is less risky or, or whatever I, you know. right or 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 in this in this region um don't grow this crop but grow this crop or yeah. if you're going to grow this crop like if you want to really if you want to grow tomatoes use well water or treat the water and grow, and grow it on plastic culture right don't 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 grow it on the soil or if you're going to take your tomatoes stake them don't you know i mean certain common sense things but now we can begin to put some some actual risk messages and some actual best practices that we know really do mitigate risk in place yeah yeah absolutely it's uh, uh, it's it's exciting stuff because i think after working with farmers for the last uh, 10 or 12 years um, they you know they know a lot about. I mean, this is a this is a generalization, but uh, they know uh, down to micronutrients in in their soil or in their water um, from a yield standpoint, and, and know the impacts on the crop, and can recognize the impacts within the plant. And now, um, the the more information uh, that we're generating that's that's very very local, um, it, it, you know, potentially has the the ability to provide them with the same type of information and how it increases the risk of that product. And that's, that's just a, a world that they've not operated in. I don't know. I mean, when I don't know about sort of the history of, of agriculture in, in Westernized societies to see where farmers went from um, just, you know, being individuals who are good at tending land to individuals who were, who became good at technically knowing about their land. You know, you know what I mean? Like not, not just, Hey, um, I know the right time to water and I know the right place to put this. And, 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 you know, from, from history has told me that this is a good area of this field to grow something to, I'm going to, I'm going to dive really big into the, um, the metrics involved with, with, with my farming. Um, so, you know, and, and I, I guess the, what, whatever caused that, Switch, which I think is probably yield and, and increased, you know, decreasing uh, the cost of inputs and increasing the cost or increasing the the sales of outputs. Um, food safety is one of those weird spots where it doesn't really follow that because it's it what what your your return on investment is. You weren't part of an outbreak, or or your industry wasn't part. You know, some uh, some player in your industry wasn't part of an outbreak, uh, as opposed to sort of maximizing. Um, Yields, and I think that the 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 producers in the industries that get that that they are limiting their risk, just like with weather, um, with, by pr- putting you know uh, best practices in versus having this abs you know this tangible return on investment on increased yield. The the folks that get that um, do a much better job at at food safety than than the individuals that that don't um, that that don't see the. Um, the the protective aspect of, of some of this and, and as as more information is generated in this in this uh, area we you know uh, hopefully we're, we're able to, to provide more information so people can make better decisions da- data driven decision making Don that's what this is yeah well and 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 but you raise a really good point I mean it's it's great to have data driven decision making but what if what if the data um, only has negative consequences, right? Like, so you're talking about food safety. So 
so why why would I why would I want to know something that's bad that the only thing it's going to do is cost me money? Well, because if you don't deal with it, it's going to cost you a boatload more money, and it it might someday it might catch up with you. So that I think again, the people that are that are smart, that are that are proactive, will absolutely say yes. Our brand is worth a lot to us. We're going to be protective of that brand. We're going to do the right thing. Um, but that is very that is mu- that is a much different decision making process than saying, well, okay, if I add two cents worth of of this mineral, I'm going to increase my yield and I'm going to get a dollar more. So that's like that's a good no brainer economic. This you know decision. Um, if I spend five dollars to make this safer, I will avoid the probability of a hundred thousand dollar loss. But on the other hand, I could also just be lucky and and not do it and save the money and and the, that problem probably won't happen. So, yeah, I mean we're we're getting there in sort in terms of data driven decision making. But in in some cases, it's still and again you know to to bring it back to something near and dear to my heart, it, it still in many cases come back comes back to probability. Probability, and people don't always understand probability. In fact, I would go so far as to say most people don't understand probability most of the time. Or even if they do understand it, I mean, there's psychology research that's coming out that people, that humans are just notoriously bad about making decisions, even when they rationally understand what's going on. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I see that in my own decision making when it comes to my children. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, it's, know, it's, you know, yeah. you you make you know um, that a certain you know incident is is unlikely to happen, or or that um, that that you know so, so you know Sam, my um, our youngest son, uh, uh, I guess probably over the last week or so has developed this skin rash, and I'm you know irrational about what it mm-hmm. is, you know, just it, you know not not really. It's different when you have when you're emotionally invested in it versus um, objectively looking at it. And I think that a far, that a farmer is probably the the same thing. They they have an emotional investment because it's their livelihood. Um, and in that 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 comment that comes out over and over again probably plays into um, uh, the psychology of this, which is like in your your point on not having a great grasp of probability is that well. Well, damn, we've been doing this stuff for so long, and and this has never been a problem before, right? Like, it, 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 to look at that um, from the cynical part of you know the food safety, um, the, the I, I think the consensus answer that that pops up is well, maybe, but but you know, we we do we're not sort of looking at the psychology of why someone might say that and how. I mean, this is uh, this kind of gets to the root of uh, of our struggles in extension and academia and in the world of food safety is okay. So it's not enough for us to say we need really good data to provide to somebody to make a decision, but we also have to recognize what their psychological situation is and how do we present that data and how do we, how do we, um, uh, you know, compel that individual to make a, a decision when, when there's, there's more to this than just, um, you know, just the data and, and the technical understanding of it. It, it's this is I mean this is a big this is a big question you know this is a big deal because it's it, it, it's sort of changing how we it, 
it, it makes me think that that our you know the the professional organization that we're going to go to in, in, in you know in a month from now we've got a lot of food really I mean the best in the world food microbiologists and the best in the world um, teachers about food microbiologists but but we don't have anybody who does psychology who com- comes to that meeting and we don't have anybody who uh, or or I shouldn't say that we we have few I mean, very few yeah, very few I mean you know certainly the the stuff that you do and that Doug do that Doug does touches on that uh, people like Bill Holman my, my colleague yeah. from human ecology has a degree in psychology so there are people um, again the, sort of the the social science side people that I think are starting to come to that meeting but absolutely they need to be they need to be there at the at the table for the discussions just like the hardcore risk modelers that don't necessarily come to IAFP need to be there as well and we need to you know, it, it's it really is a it really is a team effort with a lot of people with very diverse and you know we're talking about this whole microbial ecology thing. We need the the, the gene jockeys, the people that understand you know sequencing organisms and understand how to to uh, to 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 characterize the pictures of you know what's going on in this uh, in this environment in terms of what the organisms are and which ones are at higher levels and lower levels and how the, all that changes over time and then again and and soil scientists and and uh, uh, plant pathologists I mean it's a it's a it's a big team of people that need to come together to look at these issues yeah absolutely and, and it makes me you know think that um you know, USDA a few years ago, uh, when they decided to to put a whole bunch of money into two really large projects um, that we've talked about on this uh, on this podcast because we're both involved with them, the um, uh, NoraCore project that that Leanne Jacobs uh, leads as as PI, and um, the uh, STEC uh, in Beef project that Rod Moxley leads at um, the University of Nebraska, um, that 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 was. You know that that part of that is their thing. It was probably their thinking, um, you know, or or it could have been that that for these really complex issues, we have to put everybody. We we have to look at this beyond food microbiology and and um and our traditional ways to do it. And and let's get teams together that are huge that have all these different components that look at economics, that look at psychology, that look at um you know so you know people with education theory background. If we're really going to tackle some of these big questions, we've got to uh, put money big big enough money behind it. And and I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm it, like I said, full full disclosure, I'm on both of these projects. I don't know if they do that. I mean, I, I think that even with a, a five year, twenty five million dollar project, you're you're just starting to put together the the right team who might come up with the right questions to to look at. Um, not um, you know, I, 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 I not that that USDA is thinking that this would be solved or anything like that. But but we're we're um, there, there are pieces as, as you go into this in years two and three of these projects where, where it becomes more and more clear that um, that maybe the, the 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 teams weren't weren't big enough or or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's well, and 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 you know, again, not to not not to to pick on on USDA, but I think this is an interesting experiment, right? I mean, yeah. it's a lot of money to spend. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to approach this. One way to approach it is to pick like, okay, let's pick the top two problems and let's fund massive projects with the best teams to try to see what we can do. Another approach would be the traditional approach where we're going to fund 
single investigator projects or you know a number of years ago they started funding these these multi uh, functional projects where it had to have a research and teaching and extension component it had to have at least two of those research teaching and extension um another approach might be to fund a whole ton of really tiny little starter projects and see who comes back with interesting data and so i mean it, it's good that they're they're mixing it up and they're trying different things i think that's the the way the, to move forward um but you know while we're talking about multifunctional teams i think i think an important person to have on the team, and this is, you know, um, uh, important for any food safety thing is and we're realizing the importance of packaging technology. Like, for example, I know in my own life, I, I now, starting from this point going forward, I am only going to eat bananas if they're wrapped in plastic. <laughs> I, I kind of thought you were going to <laughs> see direction. where I was going to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but I wasn't, I wasn't too, <laughs> too sure. Um, yeah, I mean, bananas only... Uh, uh, wrapped in plastic is, um, I, I think, is, is going to reduce your your risk. Uh, of some, <laughs> it's going to reduce my risk of something. Something, yeah. Of uh, uh, well, of of maybe uh, getting. Um, of, uh, it's it does reduce, make it harder to eat the banana. <laughs> it does. It does it reduce your risk of actually having to touch the banana or um, touching it because you i mean i don't know uh, i've only seen i've not done the these experiments i you know i like to do some experiments in my home every once in a while i've not wrapped a, a banana with uh with plastic wrap and tried to peel it but i mean i'm sure if you had some sort of a tool like a knife um you could effectively uh uh you know, remove that peel what without ever having to touch it Maybe that's what it's about. Yes. <laughs> so uh so we should we should explain for the listeners what we're talking about. So I think I think on the last episode we did talk about bananas and washing bananas, right? Yeah. That's and not that's a thing that we actually discussed. It's not it's not something that I imagined or no. that we had that was just you and me personally chatting. It was the last episode, right? Right. And the ridiculousness okay. of it. Uh, the ridiculousness of it. Right. And yeah. so and so to so I so what happened was uh, so I was uh, I was sitting in the um the airport the Sao Paulo uh, the, the Hilton Lounge uh, at the Sao Paulo Airport, um, the international airport, and and waiting to go back to the United States. And I was, you know, was, first it was really busy there, and uh, most people there were there to watch a soccer game because apparently they have they have soccer games in Brazil all the time. Um, and by soccer, I mean football. Um, and uh, and the Brazilians really really like their football, so that's a whole another whole another discussion. But anyway, so I was in the sitting in the lounge. And uh, which I have to say, you know, since I know he listens to the show, I owe I owe a huge, a huge debt of gratitude to David Tharp for really letting me wake up to the fact that if you travel a lot, you need to have a, a lounge membership in whatever carrier it is that you frequently fly on. And so what David took me into uh, a lounge, we were traveling somewhere and you can bring in a guest and David took me in. He does not, he doesn't travel on United. It's, it's another carrier, but he took me in, took me into the lounge and I'm like, you know, this is, this is really cool. And then a little while after I invested in a United club membership and it's been one of the single most important investments I think I've made as a, as a traveler is to be able to go to a, a place with that not everybody in the airport can get to. And there's a smaller number of screaming kids and usually there's drinks and usually there's some food. So anyway, so I was sitting in the the the, uh, the lounge there, and uh, they had bananas, which is you know one of the things that uh, the first of all, uh, so or second of all, or third of all, whatever point we are up to on this. Um, uh, Brazilians love bananas. There are bananas in everything. They have fried bananas. They they cook bananas with uh, in savory dishes, and it's just so. Anyway, if you like bananas, go to go to Brazil. There's lots of bananas. Um, so there's bananas. 
in the uh, in the lounge, um, except they're all individually wrapped in plastic. And so I as I as I often do when I'm traveling, I took a photograph and then I sent it to you, Ben. And so I said my question to you and I sent you a photograph and we'll we'll put this put this on Tumblr and then link to it in show notes or something is um, uh, I sent you a message. Do I have to wash this banana? <laughs> what was and what was your answer? Um, yes, definitely. And the plastic wrap. <laughs> <laughs> or just use ethanol. Right. At which at which point I suggested that maybe the thing to do would be just to dip everything in in Jack Daniels, which, by the way, they had in the uh, in, in the United Lounge there in Sao Paulo. Convenient. Probably that Jack Daniels was for <laughs> banana dipping and not for actually drinking. Yeah, well, and it was mostly gone, and there were a lot of bananas. So I think probably a lot of people had been dousing their their bananas in Jack. Well, and then I told you, yes, you could do that and then wash it. As long as you wash it, that's the most important part. Right, and then my response was unsayable on the podcast, but basically expletive, I'm just going to drink the Jack. (laughs) And I said, and burn the banana. banana. (laughs) So, but this evolved, right? So I I did make a suggestion to you um, that – you should put a sign on the bananas um, warning others of this risk just based on what we had talked about and, and the clear public health message that came out of um, the individual uh, who uh, who we talked about in episode 43. Right. And, 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 and I said uh, – so then I, I, I took out my field notes – uh, notepad uh, and my space pen pen uh, you know they should sponsor the podcast um, and uh, and said and I wrote a note I said warning uh, wash before eating and, and then I put you that signed it to me. The, put the next to the banana and then I signed it uh, B Chapman PhD <laughs> and, and I am I, if you have not noticed this about me Ben I am not a particularly good speller especially after I've had a, a, a Jack Daniels and I do actually know how to spell your name but I, uh, I started to write Champman or or something and anyway i fixed it so uh so so anyway so there your your warning note in my handwriting next to the banana um and then i realized after i had written that uh little note and uh and and put it next to my banana and taken a picture while all i realized this is a very crowded lounge and <laughs> around me all there are all these people looking at me like what is this dude doing he's sitting there he's drinking a drink he's taking pictures of this banana um uh, and then and then i then i realized um, suddenly that what you meant was not to put a warning sign on my banana, but to put a sign on all of the bananas. Yeah, because you know the information. I know the yeah. right. Don't write yourself a message about this. Like, oh, right. oh, in case I forget, this was, I mean, this is for the masses. This is a, right. pub, this is a public health concern. Right. <laughs> Right. So, uh, so, so then, then what I did was I, I did uh, before I left the lounge. Um, I did put the sign next to the bananas and uh, and took a picture of it. Um, uh, so there, so there, I, I left. I but uh, but because because I didn't want to, I didn't really want to mess with the Brazilians that much. They've been very nice to me. I, t- I took a picture of it. I sent it to you. Um, and then I took a banana for the road, and I took my I took my sign with me. Awesome. Good. Good. Well. Uh, and, I, and I told you in the text that this is a, this becomes a slide where I'm going to tell <laughs> that this entire story uh, uh, about the rid- the ridiculousness of of someone telling somebody to wash their bananas from a food safety standpoint. This is like I, I'd already started working through how I was going to tell the story, and I have the absolute perfect visual for it. Um, so it's it's awesome. Thank you for for that. Oh, no problem. Thank you for for uh, entertaining my my uh, humorous uh, semi humorous. Uh... Uh, uh, messages from the uh, from the United Lounge. Well, there's I mean, there's another piece of follow up on this uh, discussion, because uh, after 
you had mentioned this. Um, you know, we we had this uh, discussion, this discussion back and forth over iMessage, uh, and that this went into show notes for a follow up. I just googled washing your bananas to see what <laughs> other people come up with, and there's there's this. I found another like an Associated Press article from 2007 that the headline was this. It appeared in the Napa Valley Register, but it was an AP story that went all over the U.S. that said wash your bananas and other lessons in cleaning produce. Um, and uh, l- let me read. A couple of passages uh, from this from this ridiculous article. Um, the, it starts with when it comes to motivating people to wash their produce before eating it, visuals seem to help. Potatoes, for instance, no food safety argument is needed when dirt is that easy to see and feel. But how about tomatoes and apples, which arrive at the grocer flawless and shiny, and bananas and watermelons, the skins and rinds of which you'll never eat? Getting people to wash those, yes, even the bananas, just takes a different sort of visual. And there's a quote then from um, from someone from Colorado State Extension saying, probably 100 people handled that banana before you did, said uh, Ann Zender, a food safety expert with Colorado State University Extension in Long Longmont, Colorado. If you have somebody who hasn't washed his hands after the bathroom has the flu, that's all over it. Um, so I think we we kind of talked about this a lot in the last episode, and, and um, I would argue that probably 100 people have not touched that banana, um, first of all. Uh, secondly, the flu um, is a respiratory disease, so if someone did touch it or coughed on it, then I need to inhale off of that banana peel, and washing it um, probably isn't going to do a whole lot anyway, and, and it's just ridiculous. Um, so the other thing well, is, and where's where's the epidemiology, right? Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, there are no foodborne disease outbreaks linked to bananas. So I mean, I realize that absence of evidence is not ev- evidence of absence, but at the same time, let's be reasonable. We can't we can't tell we ha- we have a limited ability to make a difference for people. What's the key message that we want to get out to people in the two seconds we have to communicate something important? It sure as hell is not wash your bananas. No, it's not. It's not wash your bananas at all. It's if, and, if, and if everybody washed our bananas, it, oh. it, it, what, what would that do to public health? Nothing. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, they also in this article go into things like bananas, avocados, and watermelon. Like they describe the best ways to to uh, wash your bananas. So let me read you that: scrub skin with a scrubber to eliminate contamination that could be transferred to flesh after touching or cutting through the exterior. That's bananas. Then I I did cut and paste. A that, couple is of bananas. that is bananas. That is bananas. Whoa! Hey. <laughs> um, then then they also talk about corn. Though protected by the husk, ears of corn still should be rinsed under cool water before eating. You know, you know what else I do with my corn before I eat it, Ben? I cook, I cook it. it. I cook it. <laughs> I put it into boiling water. Boiling water. <laughs> but they say things like this is where the where, where things get just crazy. The, uh, the the next sentence is the silk. Those white threads that cling to the ear are best removed by brushing the ear with a soft brush or towel. So not only are we telling people to wash their corn, but we're kind of confusing the message by saying somehow that silk matters from a public health standpoint. So um, brush it with a soft brush or towel. But no, really, you want to remove the silk from corn because it gets caught in your teeth. No. Yeah, it's gross. Who <laughs> it's wants gross. to eat that? Yeah. I don't want to eat silk. Uh and then, so here's the last one that I pulled from this article. Leaks. 
trim off and discard the root end as well as the upper two-thirds of the green stalk, which is tough. Okay, so that's fine. Quality thing. Cut the remaining portion of the stalk in half lengthwise and then submerge it in a bowl of cool water. <laughs> to Don, make your leak safe. Right. <laughs> Don? Wait, wait, Ben? Ben? Oh, hear that? I, I do. That's my head hitting the microphone. It's incredible. Just submerge it in a bowl of cool water. Um, so, uh, uh, oh well. It's yeah. too, and so no, what? It's... My my note here that I put in the show notes was this is from 2007 when we knew much less less about foodborne illness. So we've come yes. so far. Yes, we've come so far. <laughs> it's, oh. oh, it's so good. Um, so so before we we kind of move on for for our day because i know you've got uh a a a, a travel day coming up i wanted Mm -hmm. to talk if if it's if it's all right with you about this hepatitis a outbreak uh we we alluded to in episode 43 a little bit um but uh there's sort of more information's come out and and i've written a little bit on it and um did did a couple interviews so so i want to i just want to jump into this a little bit sure so yeah so we're we're one one hour and 14 minutes in and we haven't started the show yet um so uh but so let's talk about hepatitis but before we do that there's one more piece of follow-up um from uh, a fan of the show who's shared with us some good information and it's relatively timely so uh, i do i do want to share it um and then and then we can talk about hepatitis is that okay that sounds great Okay, so so this is this is from a fan of the show um, who we'll call uh, Deep South, which <laughs> is a it's a nod to uh, all the president's men and, and Deep Throat. Um, so and 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 friend of the show uh, writes uh, greetings from. So I'll I'll read his his post and then uh, you can have a reaction to it and then and then I'll summarize and we'll move on to hepatitis. So um, so Deep South writes uh, Ben and Don greetings from a wet and soggy and then uh, he put his location and I'll put undisclosed location. I was listening to the podcast while driving uh, earlier today and especially like the discussion on mechanically tenderized beef. When you find out where all the mechanically tenderized beef may be sold, I would be interested in knowing. This is somebody who is a professional works in the food industry, okay? Um, he says, this issue was discussed at the last uh, CFP, Conference for Food Protection Biennial, me- Biennial Meeting, and, and I was there, and, and he's correct in that. None of the food safety industry types had product in their supply chain. I think that's very interesting. Also, this is new information, which I thought was also very interesting. In fact, an FMI survey, we should say FMI is Food Marketing Institute. It's the trade association for uh, the supermarket industry, basically. An FMI survey of the membership found virtually no members who participated in the survey were carrying this type of beef. So that means the leaders, the, the big supermarket chains, the leaders are not carrying mechanically tenderized beef. And he says at his store, at Store X, we'll call it, we have butchers in the back room that cut beef daily. And we know our suppliers, again, detailed specs, surprise audits, global food safety initiatives. So they, they really they really do – they do know their suppliers and they, they check up on them. They don't trust them. Um, he says, we do not permit mechanically tenderized beef, needle or blade, even though it likely contributes to a tender and juicy mouth mouthfeel. In speaking with a few of my contacts in the beef industry, much of this product goes into food service channels like, and I guess we'll name them here, Cisco and U.S. Foods. So the Cisco and U.S. Foods are um, basically uh, big, uh, big, 
big uh, companies that provide food to restaurants essentially and you've you've maybe seen uh, been outside your favorite restaurant uh, earlier in the early in the day and you'll see a Cisco or a US foods foods truck outside um, doing a delivery and he says uh, there is a rumor that after a very large retailer in and we should say a, re- a very large retailer that uh, we won't say the state because it'll identify yeah. it but um, there's a, v- a rumor that a very large retailer that you folks all listening to the podcast would know <clears throat> um, also carries needle injected beef but I have not verified this yet so any site insights you can offer is appreciated so uh, any any insights or thoughts on that Ben well a um, couple of things one one is um, USDA with the the announcement of this labeling uh, rule um, cited in their um, in their documentation that 26% of raw beef products are mechanically tenderized. That's a lot to me. I mean, so um, so as as our as as deep deep south notes, um, you know the the very uh, large or the the retail players um, who are. Um, who have been discussing this at, at CFP aren't carrying it. That means a lot of the the folks that weren't there must be, um, be because I mean twenty six percent, Don. It's I mean uh, uh, that that's a lot of that's a lot of beef. that's a lot of percent. That's a lot of percent. That's not it's not it's not four percent, right? It's a lot more than that, right? <laughs> um, so so I mean absolutely, it, it may all be going to to food to food service. Um, and maybe this, maybe, and this, I mean, this brings up a really great point that we had talked about a couple episodes back that, um, the labeling that, that'll be required by FSIS is, is a, you know, a, a consumer, a consumer label. Uh, but maybe the, the messaging needs to go, uh, through the food service, um, uh, world equally as well that, um, you know, as a food service, as, as a restaurant that might be buying from a food service distributor, if all this 26% is going through that, that, um, that area, that, that means that all big portion of what goes into, you know, I, even if it was, you know, 50 percent uh uh you know i don't know what the percentage is i won't do that i won't do the math i'm i'm confusing myself just talking about it but a lot of it that's going through there um if it was uh mechanically tenderized it it, you know the messaging and the labeling really needs to be at, at, at two places which would be hey the stuff that you're buying to the um uh, to the small restaurant or the large restaurant, this is uh, mechanically tenderized. So you need to handle it differently. And then again, to the that consumer who may be ordering a steak at a restaurant um, that is uh, uh, undercooked, that 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 risk matters there. Now, absolutely, yeah. It, but but here here's the thing. Let's go back to epidemiology. The illnesses that we've seen associated with with needle and blade tenderized uh, steak, the the you know few outbreaks that we've seen have not been at food service. I mean, they've all been retail uh, related. Now, not the um, not our traditional retailers. A couple of the big outbreaks have been mail order uh, uh, steaks, um, and then uh, the one that happened in, in Canada last year was was associated um, with uh, a retailer with with Costco. I mean, that's it's, an, it's no no secret that that's where where illness was were were kind of uh, associated with with uh, blades. So. So, so maybe I mean, if we look at where um, where the problems happen, it, it may be those who are um, getting this product through maybe non-traditional retailers or, or retailers that that have that, yeah that are um, not you know not at the CFP table talking about it. 
Right. And and if it's mail order, I mean, I can tell you, I probably shouldn't say too much, but we have a project <clears throat> with um, uh, Sandy Godwin at Texas State and, and also with uh, Bill Hallman at Rutgers looking at the safety of foods that uh, people order over the Internet and that come via the mail. And, you know, we're we're finding that there are some issues. That's probably the most the generous way to say it. Um, and And if you think about it, if you wanted to design a perfect system for growing pathogens, what you would do is you'd stick those pathogens into the middle of a sterile piece of meat and you'd temperature abuse it, right? And you'd incubate the heck out of that and that would amplify the risk. So um, so, so certainly that doesn't surprise me. It, it's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, what do we know about how – restaurants prepare steaks for people and what the variability is there and how many people eat steaks rare versus well done and trying to figure out whether there would be enough of an epidemiological signal there mm-hmm. to if there was an outbreak whether we would see it and maybe maybe we wouldn't because it would be spread amongst different restaurants and if it's one supplier if it's if it's uh, you know one um, food service supplier supplying to multiple different restaurants you know how big would the signal have to be before we would before we would catch it and yeah you know it's not like like fresh produce where basically nobody's going to cook their lettuce so when when uh, uh jimmy john's or whatever the you know or or taco bell has a um, e coli in lettuce outbreak um you know um, everybody's getting that dose because there's no risk reduction how 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 much confounding is there if you mm. now i put it into a product that's getting some cooking so i don't i don't know um but but certainly i was i was really encouraged to hear that n- when fmi surveyed their members that none of them were carrying it so to me what that's what my worry before was that this stuff is just out there and it's out there indiscriminately what this right. is saying is that okay if i keep shopping and i don't i can't shop at this store because I don't li- live in the, the region where this where Deep South is located, but um, uh, if, if I keep shopping and buy my filet mignon at my local Wegmans, I'm probably in pretty good shape, even if I cook that uh, medium, you know, on my backyard grill. Um, I'd like to know whether you know, and I'm sure if I go to a Morton Steakhouse or the kind of places where I would go to get a fancy steak, um, I'm I'm fairly confident that they're. I, I would I would say I'm fairly confident that they're buying um, they're not buying mechanically tenderized stuff. I would I wonder now about places like Outback, which I don't go to too much anymore, but for a while would go to and, and get my and get my steaks medium. You know, I would be very interested to know. And but I agree absolutely with your point is it's two it's labeling in two places. Number one, it's labeling so the restaurant knows. But then number two, that messaging has to be passed along to the consumer because I want to know and I, I want to know for sure. Because it's going to affect my decision about whether I order a steak or not. Yeah, and it and it should. I mean, well, not I shouldn't say that. I don't want to put the value, but it it, it may it may matter. Um, and that that's I mean, just for for interest sake, is is outside of the that that's an FDA question, right? That's not a USDA question. So this becomes another CFP discussion potentially. So it's not a. Uh, we now have you know, USDA can say, hey, on the cases of beef or on those individual packages that are being uh, sold that that we have uh, um, jurisdiction over, um, you know, you you got to slap this label on it. But putting it on a menu um, and not you know. In, in the food code, it, it says, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with this since we got a couple of projects on this this summer. Uh, it, it basically says that you've got a, 
um, disclose that there's a, a, a you know a, that there's a risk involved with undercooked raw or raw uh, meats, um, and then you have to remind somebody uh, when they when they order it, and that might be done uh, as an asterisk on the menu, or it might be done uh, by someone uh, mentioning it when they order it under under um, you know undercooked. Um, I, I would say that the the vast majority of that focus has been on um, ground meats, uh, in both in the regulatory world and, and at uh, food service. Now we're talking about whole muscle meats, or what people think are whole muscle meats. And um, and in the food code, I mean, it, it definitely talks about 145 as being the uh, limit for muscle meats uh, guideline or the you know the the safe endpoint temperature. But but I think this is a, a much larger um, a much larger issue than that. It's just they're, they're viewed differently. Um, well, and and the and the generic messaging I see on restaurant menus, it's like a message that says that um, undercooked protein foods may represent a risk of foodborne illness or something like that. Yeah. It's like, well, okay, that's fine. Like I understand that for a burger, but my assumption is if I'm getting a steak, that the risk is less. But I want to know. Yeah. I want. I mean, I literally want a separate asterisk for mechanically tenderized beef. I mean, that's that's. But but again, I realize that I'm uh, unusual in that respect, and I understand that many restaurants don't want to clutter their menus up with stuff like that. That's negative messaging. But but I mean, that's what that's what I as a consumer, that's what I want, and I think that's what everybody deserves. It, it sounds like something we might want to. Um, you know, I've not been to CFP, and I'm going to go next uh, ne- next round in 2014. But it might be something that we want to bring up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a it's a it's an important issue. Cool. Okay, so now that we're um, almost an hour and a half in, we should start the show, and we'll we'll make it a short show. We'll and and uh, you you want to talk about uh, uh, hepatitis? I do. I want to talk about hepatitis because. Um, because things have kind of evolved since the last time we talked about this. And, uh, uh, we've got now a hundred and, um, gosh, the, the number I saw today, I think was 141 individuals ill with hepatitis A, uh, linked to a frozen berry product, uh, coming out of Oregon. Um, Townsend Farms is a, uh, processor that, that, uh, has sold the implicated product. Uh, they also process, um, and pack, uh, the, this frozen berry, uh, product uh, under different uh, banners. Uh, Harris Teeter, a, a retailer um, that's located here in, in the Carolinas, uh, is uh, the is sort of one of the other, uh, or is the only other um, group that's uh, uh, that's handled this same product at the same facility. Uh, and it's all been tied to this antioxidant um, mix. And so you've got frozen blueberries and frozen strawberries and frozen raspberries and then pomegranate seeds. And so, so here's here's the the piece that that kind of came out over the weekend. Um, there had been rumors. I, I talked to a few people in the industry that that said, "Hey, this is a pomegranate seed issue. This is not a berry issue." Um, and an FDA um, uh, went and and sort of said the same thing that the only uh, there had been some more illnesses uh, associated with this outbreak linked to the pomegranates that were like like linked to an, uh, another product where pomegranate seeds were in, uh, and the distributor. Uh, of those pomegranate seeds uh, has uh, conducted or um, uh, had recalled their product. And and actually FDA on uh, on Saturday night announced that they were um, shutting the doors to the U.S. for the pomegranate seed uh, producer, which is located in Turkey. Um, so here's here's I guess the 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 heard and seen aspect of of this. Some I, I think some really interesting stuff. I, I talked about this in a um, 
in a BARF blog post uh, while I was in Canada uh, about uh, the microbial safety of berries. And um, uh, Bill Keane, uh, the, uh, as I refer to him, um, uh, ep- a foodborne epidemiologist extraordinaire. Extraordinaire. Because uh, he, he is. He's, I mean, the guy does a, does a great job. As he, he really gets the, the public health communication side of what, uh, of what they do. Took, a, I think, an extremely progressive take on this. Um, in, in a lot of other outbreaks, and hepatitis A is a little different because of, uh, of what it is, but in a lot of other outbreaks, you, you very rarely see um, what, what, what they've done in Oregon, and it's this. Um, they were cited uh, as saying that public health efforts related to Townsend Farms processing facility uh, have, have happened, and it wasn't, they didn't go in, Oregon Public Health did not go into the processing facility to inspect the facility or look at supplier records or anything like that. What they did is they went in to look at the, um, the employees, and they, not whether the employees were the source of the infection, but whether the employees were at an increased risk of being infected themselves from these pomegranate seeds or berries at this point when this happened, whatever the input was, um, uh, contracting hepatitis A and then passing that on uh, to individuals. And, and so, um, you know, he, he said uh, v- very explicitly in, in, in their, uh, his comments to or- the Oregonian, the point of the inspection was to ensure that no employee had become infected by the organic antioxidant blend or in turn passed the virus to friends or family. And I just thought that was, um, that, that's a, um, a, an excellent public health focus here uh, that, that you, you're going to have, uh, you know, those individuals just by the, the sheer fact that they happen to be in the same, uh, facility, uh, that, that handle the contaminated product, they, you know, they're, to me, they're, they're at higher risk because they, uh, for hepatitis A than you and I have who haven't eaten this, this product. You know, I say that not assuming that you haven't eaten it, Don, but you know, you know, we, we don't have any, known source of hepatitis A around us, these individuals were handling that product. So yeah, absolutely. Public health go in and make sure that they're not, um, uh, you, uh, infected or, um, showing signs of, uh, of symptoms and then look at the employee hand washing after handling pomegranate seeds and berries and look at how, what, what those risk factors might be for them getting infected because it could become this major, major problem that, that goes beyond these pomegranate seeds that one food handler there, um, who, who happens to be touching, and I don't know the process at, at Townsend Foods and whether anybody is actually touching this or handling anything by hand, but maybe um, uh, doing something where they, they could then pass that on if there was poor uh, hand washing. And this is seen in, in, in a really big outbreak um, that happened at a famous uh, restaurant in the UK, the Fat Duck, uh, and the guy who runs the Fat Duck, who Doug loves on Barf Blog, mm-hmm. um, what is his name? Fat Duck Heston Blumenthal. Um, he had an outbreak, a Noro outbreak at, at his uh, restaurant um, back. I think it was probably three years ago, um, and. Uh, the investigators from UK public health, uh, went in and, uh, did an investigation and basically found that there were, um, infected, uh, or there were contaminated oysters, uh, that was likely the source of, of this outbreak in the first place. But through the handling of those oysters, uh, multiple employees also got norovirus and then worked while ill. So, so it, it persisted this, this, in this, uh, uh, 
this pathogen was you know introduced into their system someone got sick and it stayed around and it made a much larger deal i mean it was you know i don't know a thousand diners that that ate there or something like that um let me let me let me google that uh but it was i mean it was huge uh in a in, in, in the scope of an outbreak. So I just, I mean, just kudos to, to foodborne disease epidemi- epidemiologist extraordinaire Bill Keen and his folks in Oregon Public Health for, for identifying this. Like this is not, I mean, I don't know if, uh, maybe this happens all the time in public health. Maybe this is exactly what happens all the time, but I've not seen it uh, publicized this way. Uh, in, in the past, and I think this is exactly the the kind of stuff that um, uh, that needs to happen in an outbreak like this. And, and of course, to, to look at the supplier um, is important to stop the the source, the the introduction. But but this the, these folks recognize that this could could get a whole lot worse. Right, right, and the, and yeah, and again, good good for them for for taking that action. So yeah, this is this has been a very interesting outbreak. It because um, because it is a product that is relatively shelf stable because viruses don't grow in foods, but they can persist. This has been something that has kind of been brewing for a while. It's got it's sort of had a long build up period, and as you noted, um, the the numbers just keep climbing. Um, it's going to be interesting to see uh, where this eventually all all stops. I mean, you know, clearly FDA has stopped the import, so that that should cut it off at the source until until they could figure out how to fix the problem, but but it's definitely it's it's been it's been an interesting outbreak to watch for for a bunch of different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um the the thing that 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 I also find a little bit interesting uh, uh, around this is so how does Hepe get into pomegranate seeds? And you know, if pomegranate seeds are the are the source, it is a little bit different from a berry. Um, and, and so early on in this outbreak, I did an interview with with Forbes about this. You know, the, you know, how how could berries get in, uh, you know uh, contaminated? And so I talked about irrigation water, and I talked about uh, you know potentially wash water. Water, like we've talked about on the on the podcast, is is one of those magic facilitators of uh, of pathogens and poop spreading. And um, you know that to me that was the you know the early on area. But now we look at pomegranate seeds. If they are the source, it's a little different animal because uh, or a little different plant um, because it's those, those seeds are are inside of a, a of a fruit. So it, it requires someone to break open that fruit and you know harvest those seeds and then put it into this mix. And and talking to um, Chris Gunter, who we had on uh, uh, episode. Uh, four, I think it was, uh, horticulture specialists that, that I work, do a lot of fresh produce work with, and as well as um, Sophie Cathario, um, from she's she's from Greece and is a little more, um, uh, I, I guess a little, she knows a little bit more about pomegranate cultivation than than I do. Um, both of them kind of guess that it would be pretty likely for that type of product to be hand harvested that the, now the pomegranates probably are, you know, may, may or may not be hand harvested, uh, but likely they are. And then the, the breaking open that pomegranate and, and taking those seeds out, scooping them out. Um, maybe there's a, there, there's a tool that probably does it, but it's probably done by hand, by hand that someone is holding that tool. And so, so when you know, we talked about that a little bit, um, last week, um, 
sort of offline that when we were uh, sitting in a car driving together, and um, and then I tweeted at uh, Lynn Terry, the Oregonian, who's who's an also really great. Uh, journalist who has really picked up this food safety beat well. She's been all over hazelnuts and um, the strawberry uh, outbreak uh, uh, two years ago at uh, um, a, a small uh, strawberry farm where there's uh, 0157 uh, H7 and strawberries. And, and so I've gotten to know Lynn's writing and, and I follow her on Twitter. And, and so she tweeted a little bit about this and I said, I, I see this a lot like the outbreak that happened last year um, in, that we've talked about as well on um, tuna back scrape, where where you've got individuals sitting around somewhere and and you know physically scraping something off of something else, and in this case it's removing those seeds from the from the fruit and and the tuna, um, the the back um, uh, bone uh, trying to you know harvest as much uh, meat as possible for for production. And here you know it, that that aspect happening in an area, uh, Turkey, where um, this hepatitis A is is common, where hygiene may or may not be uh, great, um, where labor laws may or may not be uh, upheld the, the same way um, as they are in, in other parts of the world. So you've got, um, you know, probably a, a, a fairly low paid individual with not little to no food safety uh, information or training um, knocking out a bunch of uh, pomegranates. And again, I'm, you know, this is, this is me just formulating that. I don't know if this is exactly what happened, but just, uh, knowing, you know, a little bit about what I, you know, what I, what I know, uh, around, uh, fresh produce and talking with some other individuals who may know a little bit more about it. I, it it's not, it, it's not as surprising when you look at, uh, hepatitis A being, um, uh, linked to pomegranate seeds. Right, right. And if you think back to an earlier hep A outbreak, the one that uh, was responsible for dis- essentially destroying the the Chi-Chi's uh, Mexican restaurant chain. It was hepatitis A in green onions, which again were harvested by hand um, and were bundled into bunches by hand with with uh, women who were caring for kids that maybe had you know hepatitis A and didn't have good access to good hand washing facilities. So again, it's it's a country where the disease is common. It's a country where the, or it's it's a process where the only way to make this food product is to have a high degree of handling and um, and again you don't have good sanitary controls in place. You don't have vaccination program place for the workers and boom you're gonna you're gonna have a problem and uh, as as and I, I was looking at the the twitter conversation between you and lynn and uh, again as she says uh, recipe for disaster so I, I mean absolutely it's just uh it's surprising in, in many ways we don't have more or maybe we do have more and we just don't have the, the again the size of the signal is 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 such that we're missing it epidemiologically but if you think about it i mean if there's a hundred and something reported cases i wonder what the under reporting factor is for hep a, I mean, who knows how many cases, right? Thousands. I mean, uh, it's this is a big outbreak. Yeah, it's it, it's huge. It's and, and it's um, it, it Lynn's conversation with me. I mean, so we've got this huge outbreak going on. The scope of it is 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 pretty you know pretty wild. Lynn, Lynn's conversation or her, you know, she she was sort of said, hey, FDA, hello, you know, look at this. And I I really see this as a, you know I'm a I'm a proponent of this business-to-business understanding around food safety. I wonder how many berry processors, you know, know that pomegranates are hand harvested. You know, when we've got um, a month ago when I I sat together um, with the. 
the steering committee of the um, Food Safety Preventive Controls Alliance, and we went through um, how to teach people how to do HACCP, uh, essentially uh, as part of this group that, that you and I are, are involved with. The, you know, you talk about supplier controls as part of a prerequisite, and just the flow of information and knowing what those those risks are. You know, how many of the, how, do, does the berry processing, frozen berry processing industry look at that and say, you know what, man, we're buying pomegranate seeds from X. Um, we better ask them what their employee hygiene's like because that's our biggest risk here. It's it's not it's not irrigation water. It's not the farms that that those pomegranates were grown on. And so to me, I, and and I don't I don't expect that FDA should needs to get that granular with their recommendations. Like, hey, here's a memo for folks that might be um, uh, using pomegranate seeds. You need to talk to folks, uh, your suppliers, about what they do because this is what we've seen risk in. I mean, that'll happen, but but this becomes a business-to-business -business, um, discussion. So I guess the you know, to your point on this is a really large outbreak, does this outbreak, it, does it provide enough incentive to the rest of the industry that, that handles product in a similar way to look at their suppliers and, and look at, well, what is the, what is the hygiene like at, uh, at that pomegranate harvest facility or, or whatever it is. And I, again, I'm, you know, we, we don't know enough info about this, but it's, you know, time and time again, when we look at these outbreaks, um, it's stuff like this that pops up that, that makes us, you know, makes me at least think, man, I wish if I was, I, I, I don't, I, I don't um, envy our colleagues in those positions. You know, uh, someone like uh, like Deep South, who is involved with food safety for an entire retail store, from procurement to staff, to be able to look at all the um, the hazards that are involved in that for the thousands and thousands of products that they carry, and then come up with strategies to mitigate those, and for you know. And then determine well which of these is likely to to occur and which of these is not. I mean, it's that it, you know, it, it's sometimes a lot easier for us to um, to do what we do. And I, it makes me, you know, I, uh, it, I worry a lot less, I think, than if I did what Deep South does. Oh yeah, yeah. We we have the luxury of uh, being able to sit in our um, uh, ivory tower tenure chairs or, or soon to be soon to be tenure chairs uh, and and pontificate and have a podcast uh, but at the end of the day uh, yeah hope you know hopefully we're well I mean I guess if we're if we're doing consulting work for the industry we're we're, we're in, engaged to a certain extent but yeah it's a, it's a it's a hard job man I a huge huge appreciation for what what those uh, what those folks do on a daily basis I mean again I, I was uh, had a number of interactions to uh, opportunities to interact with uh, with Gail Prince who who was in charge of food safety for Kroger for many years before he uh, before he retired, and I would be in committee meetings, and this guy's phone would be ringing all the time, and it would be a crisis, and he would have to go and handle it. Um, and and that's just the life uh, the life that they live, and that's uh, yeah. I mean, then thank God that they do right because yeah. the, that they're the they're the ones that are that are providing the food for all of us. So thank goodness they're they're watching out for that, and they're doing the, doing the right thing and, and putting the putting the programs in place. But but to come back to an earlier point that you made, I agree. I mean, certainly FDA, at the, when it rises to the level of a problem like this, FDA needs to, be, to get involved. But, I mean, it really – it should have been um, – uh, it should have been, uh, you know, the folks at, uh, at this uh, – 
towns and farms uh, that that were maybe checking up on where their stuff was coming from, right? Or or wh- whoever they got it from. Um, so yeah, I mean, and and to know, well, okay, so where do we get our pomegranate seeds from? And and let's go visit them. I mean, yeah. I know with the work that we do. For Rutgers University Dining, University Sanitarian, John Nason, every time uh, one of their chefs gets a, an idea for a new product, a new thing that they want to buy from somebody, um, John, wherever possible, goes out and does a visit uh, to that supplier and sends samples to us for testing, look at it, you know for pathogens and indicator organisms, and that that's the kind of that's the kind of due diligence you need. You need somebody. You need to go and actually check up and visually visually inspect what's what's going on, so you so you have some some knowledge of what the practices are. Yeah, absolutely. That's what that's what this is all about. It's having people in those places that know what what the hazards are and what where it's likely to happen and then being able to do it. I mean, that's the um you know, if we can if we can help them out to to sort of alert them to stuff that we see uh to let them do their job uh you know, uh to make their job easier um then then I think we serve a purpose, but yeah, it's uh um that's it's a big it's a big deal. So, yeah. So kudos to them. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a show. I think that's a show. Hour, hour and forty-five minutes. I think we better, uh, uh, you know, we better uh, cut it off, or we're gonna have to call this like a super duper double special (laughs) and cut it into two parts, and it just gets messy. Yeah, yeah. Double, double live albums are never fun. No, no. Well, sometimes, I, I mean, they're never fun to make. They're never fun, fun to, to make. They're fun, they're to, fun listen to listen to. to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, great, great stuff, Don. Uh, uh, thanks for chatting. Glad we uh, made time for this, as we do uh, yep. every couple of weeks. Uh, really, really good conversation. It's, uh, um, yeah, I think uh, stuff for us to, to think about for next time. So thanks, uh, thanks again, and I'll talk to you later. All right, talk to you soon, man. Bye bye. Bye. was fun today i mean it's fun always hold on hold on one second yeah yeah oh okay okay sorry no problem that was We're just, uh, uh getting ready to go so cool Kristen's just taking the she heard me say goodbye to you and she thought the show was over <laughs> it's like uh she, little does she know about after dark yeah she doesn't even download well that's all right danny doesn't either <laughs> And you know what? It, I'm glad. I'm, I'm kind of Danny. I think would would like that Kristen doesn't download because then she would refer to her as a shut in. <laughs> right. So, so I, I, it automatically ups uh, Kristen's uh, coolness factor. In Danny. exactly. Yeah. Uh, that was that was really that was that was really good today. That was a lot yeah, of it was yeah, a lot of lot of lot of talking without a lot of uh, preparation. But I think we got some good oh, messages out there. Yeah, we, and just enough to enough to go on. So cool. Um, all right, so so I've got now. 
do you oh. are yeah let's let's talk about what we've got in the spreadsheet currently right and yeah it's 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 a confusing mess and uh so yeah so so episode 42 is posted yes um 40 uh 43 i think i've got draft show notes up on squarespace okay Which... and i've done preliminary audio editing on 43 okay. <laughs> good um so and, would... and, and i can i can just so let me let me just take care of 43 okay uh, because, uh, like I said, I, I did, and, and I, I got I got confused because I I stopped updating the spreadsheet and I got confused about who was supposed to do what. So, um, but anyway, I'll I'll I'm most of the, I'm I'm mo- I've done all of the cleaning up of the audio because I I cleaned up the audio to send it to um, Andreas, and so now all I've really got to do is is drop it in to GarageBand and add the intro and outro and, okay. and, 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 you know, do the after dark and it's good to go. So, and I, I have time today. I mean, we're leaving for Copenhagen at the end of the day, but it's like a late flight. So I have most of the day to just catch up on stuff around here, including do that. So that's, that's on my list. And I was hoping to get it done before today, but it didn't happen. So. Um, okay, cool. Well, that, that, that's awesome. I was planning on right after us doing this to go do the show notes from Andreas, but if I don't need to, then that's awesome. I appreciate that. Oh yeah. I've, I, like I said, I've I'll, started it and yeah, I, I'll take a look at them. Mostly I just need a little bit more tweaking. And then like I said, I'll do the, I'll do the audio. So, um, and I still, I can't believe it. I still don't have a working, a uh, working pen. I've been taking notes on my, <laughs> on my phone. Um, so, uh, so let's see. So, um, so I got it. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'll update the uh, spreadsheet because I got it open right now. Oh, cool. All um, right. So we recorded it July, Tuesday, July 2nd. Um, so I'll take audio for this one. Okay. Is that that sure. would be the right? Yeah. Okay. Um, audio by Ben. So I'll take this and throw it in Dropbox for Andreas. So you don't have to worry about that um, okay. now. And then you've got uh, show notes. And there we go. Updated. Cool. Uh, okay. Cool. All right. So that's the first thing. Second thing. Let's look at uh, let's look at our timing. So I think we'll we'll be able to get this one up before IAFP, and then we you know, we should be able to uh, record another record one. An, another one. I agree. Yeah. Um, I'm July is amazing. I have nothing like, cause I'm, te- <laughs> well, I'm teaching this class and it's online. So I've got a whole bunch that is not, it's all asynchronous. So right. I, so I just work on that and then I'm, um, I've got my dossiers due August 1st. So I'm working on that and, mm. uh, and then that's writing. for reappointment. This is for tenure. Oh, Jesus. Have you been there that long already? Well, yeah. So it's, oh, it, I know it's crazy. Ours. So the way it works here is. Um, I have to do it before the contract is signed for the seventh year mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or like that. That's it. So I, I'm, I've only been at, you know, at my, my job, uh, four years, but the papers have to go in. So it's all ready for the fifth year. So if I don't get it, that I have another year to do it. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I okay. think, or I can at least abort the pro- the process. It's sorry. I should, once I'm in it, I'm in it. But I can re- I can pull my papers if it's not going well, basically. Okay. Uh, and then I have another year to to mess around with it. Okay. And and they they always encourage people to go up at that in that time frame. Yes. Yeah. This is the, the this is the normal time frame. Okay. Um. So and we have I, I I don't know if it's that they just hire fantastic people at NC State. Or if we have a um, an easier process, but we the success rate's very very high. 
Um, like basically, if you know, I, I would have known by now if things were not going well. Right. Um, and I and I hopefully have have not heard that information and chosen to ignore it. But I think things are well, so I just continue on doing my thing and just clean everything up that I've got in my dossier and throw it in and and then wait until next May. Right. Well, yeah, and that's that's not unusual that you're scrambling during the summer and you don't hear almost until the next summer. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so I've got to throw my I gotta get names of external reviewers to my department head on the fifteenth and then my whole thing goes in on the first and there we go. Um so and I don't think I was gonna put you on the list, but I don't think that technically we can do it. Because you and I, even though we're not collaborators, I think that us doing the podcast makes us collaborators. Yeah, I, I and that's a good question. And I don't I don't know, but certainly you you should check. But it would certainly I I, I feel well, I, I always feel like I could give an impartial judgment on anyone, um, but I, I feel like in this case there is at least the appearance of conflict. Yeah, of interest, yeah, so. I'm actually not going to even do it yeah. just because. But, yeah. but I mean, so so yeah, I mean, but but there are there. I mean, there are a bunch of good people out there that that you probably should should put on the list. I mean, you know, I don't know, like, uh, would you would you consider somebody like Bill Hallman from Rutgers to be a, a good person? I Absolutely. mean, he's, he's yeah, on, he's on my list. He's on your list. Good. Yeah, good. and 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 even. Um, uh, I mean, even Linda is a is on my list uh-huh. uh, as an individual because yeah. we we haven't officially, you know, we're we're friends and I right. didn't disclose that, but we haven't officially worked on anything. So right, uh, right. That seems to be the the big dis- distinction. And yeah, right. there's there's a few others. So I'm that's that's one of my my tasks for the next couple of days. It's kind of it's it. I, this process has been. Um, uh, uh, stressful, mm-hmm. um, just from just an uncertainty standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like it's supposed to be a little bit stressful, but it's also been kind of a nice time to reflect. So yeah, well, that's the one thing is like whenever I would do my annual stakeholder review and stuff, it's like it's yeah, it's like a lot of stuff you have to look at. But at the end of it, you always feel good because you sit back and say, well, wow, I really I've really done a lot of stuff in the last year, or in the, in your case, real I really have done a lot of stuff in the last four years. I mean, so it's or five years or whatever. Yeah. So it ends up being very, very, like you said, a very nice, very nice reflection. So yeah, I mean, I mean it's good. It's good, and it's, I was happy that I was able to dedicate a month to to do this class and to uh, to do this process. So, so anyway, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm good. free. You, I mean, okay. Basically, tell me in the next, you know, that the week of the fifteenth or or whenever you might be back when you want to do another one. Yeah. So we're. Um... We're still trying to squeeze in a trip to Ithaca, but I'm thinking. I don't know if that's going to be next weekend. Well, it's not next weekend. I'm not, I don't know if it's going to be the weekend of the 13th or the weekend of the 20th. I think it's probably at this point it's looking like it's going to be the weekend of the 20th because that's better. So uh, how about two weeks from today? Yeah, free, uh, clear. An, another uh, – okay, good. Um, another uh, 9 a.m. 9 a.m. is uh, great. Recording? Yeah, that's good. perfect. Uh, FST 45, 9 a.m. Done. Uh, and I, it's in my calendar this time. Not like uh, when <laughs> okay. I texted well, you yesterday, that, like, Hey, yeah, are we, okay. were we supposed to do a podcast today? Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay, perfect. So, um, I'll finish up everything for 43. I've got whatever you said for 44. I've got the show notes for 44. Yep. Um, I'll get the, uh, the safari tabs, uh, for Andreas as soon as we hang up. Cool. And I threw, I, I mean, as I did last time, I, th- cause I know you edit, you've got 45 started, right? Or something. Uh, well, I made, I made, no, I made something called, uh, f- f- FST 44 copy. I see that now. So I put some stuff into the 44 that I had open. 
And okay. you'll see that it was updated at 10.56. Okay, well, I just closed the copy. I don't think I actually edited anything in there. Okay. But, uh, all right, so I'll let you... It's all done. Right, I, Okay, so I've all right. So I've uh, I've closed the copy right now. So whichever one is the one that you want to be for forty five, just name it as such, and cool. That'll be good. Done. Okay. Done. 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 Cool. Um, all right. So I'll throw this into uh, to Andreas, or I'll start making it for Andreas now and get it up to him. Awesome. Sounds sounds good. And yeah, so hopefully uh, we can get uh, forty three posted today, and and we're we're moving on moving on forty four. Excellent. Awesome. Well, hey, have a good time in Copenhagen. Thanks, thanks. Have a good time in North Carolina. I will. I'm loving North Carolina. Uh, and, uh, and we'll we'll chat again, and then I'll see you in Charlotte. Sounds good. All right. Oh, speaking of speaking of seeing each other and 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 actually being in the same place at the same time, did you listen to that episode of Back to Work where Dan and Merlin met each other? No, I oh, listened to the episode previous to that where they built up that they were meeting each other. Yeah, so it's uh, it's 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 pretty it's pretty cool. Awesome. <laughs> it's 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 well it's well worth listening to. I think it's and phenomenal the, that they had not met each other. I know. I know. And then and then the one after that when Merlin's on jury duty and he records an episode by himself is was just is spectacular. So anyway, you got a lot of good uh, back to work listening uh, queued up. Sweet. Well, I'm going to get on that. This is this is <laughs> I love I I um, they they have taken over as podcast number one the back uh-huh. episodes in my workout so yeah they're this so good so um and I haven't list, finished listening to forty three to come up with show titles but oh. I, I think it's hard to beat yeah. um I smeared poo so I smeared I'm poo. sorry I smeared poo yeah it's it, it wins <laughs> exactly cool well all right hey uh yeah have a good trip and I'll uh, I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks all right take care Ben bye bye bye.